0: Hey there, my name is Carrie Siever. I am a structural engineer with Vector Collaborative and also your host of the Unboxing Project. I am so glad that you're here joining us for season number two at Keep Coming Back. joining for the first episode of season two here. Uh, We have Kirsten Hathaway. She uh, is a senior technical service engineer with Abbott Laboratories. She got her degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Iowa. She was also very involved with track and field and cross country at the University of Iowa. In fact, with all of her involvement, she received the Susan B. Hanscher Award for the Outstanding Senior Woman at the University of Iowa. She has also completed or competed in four Ironman triathlons. So, thank you, Kirsten, for joining today. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thank you for having me. Good. Yeah. If you could maybe start a little bit about, kind of where you were raised and a little bit of your backstory as to what got you involved with mechanical engineering um, and kind of what led you down the career path that you chose. Okay, sure. Um, I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa,
1: and um, like you said, went to the University of Iowa. Um, I love math, so I didn't really know exactly what what I wanted to do when I was older. Um, Originally, I wanted to be a doctor when I first entered college. Um, but I love math, so I thought engineering was a good, you know, a good fit for me, you know, on the way to becoming a doctor. Um, but uh, I was going to say I originally started off in the biomedical engineering field, um, but ha- halfway through, after my sophomore year, someone told me that um, at that time the biomedical engineering field was pretty um, new, and someone said if you want to get involved in a career that's not in the biomedical field, you might be better off with something more broad. Like mechanical engineering, um, so I did end up switching at that point. Um, there wasn't too much difference between the two courses of studies, but um, that's you know
0: that's really how I ended up in the mechanical engineering field. Okay, so I that that would be interesting to know how much the biomedical engineering um, program has changed over the years, and to see how much like if they're still this very much the same, or if that mechanical engineering if they have. Um, diverged a little bit over the time with um you know with new advancements and stuff but that's interesting that then with your career path you kind of led into the biomedical side of things right right Right.
1: yeah I think I would have been fine had I stayed where I was but um you know I thought I was young I didn't really really know what I wanted to do but um I did end up going into the biomedical field um I did ditch the ditch the plans to become a doctor um but I thought it was kind of the best of both worlds to work in the biomedical field um I got to have my hand in the medical side of
0: things while still using my engineering degree.
1: So, yeah.
0: Sure. Can you uh, can you describe a little bit of kind of what that function is, and kind of what you do in that position of a biomedical engineer, and kind of what service you provided with that? Sure. So I work for um, for Abbott, and uh, for many
1: years we we were St. Jude Medical until Abbott acquired us in 2017. But I worked for the cardiac peacemaker and defibrillator division. And I did, um, for the majority of my career, I've done technical support for cardiac pacemakers and defibrillators. And that is kind of a lightning rod position for the company. Um, Most of it is phone based. There is quite a bit of uh, email correspondence now too, but um, basically involves answering the phone, not knowing who's gonna be on the other end. It could be a patient, it could be a clinician, could be one of our technical reps, could be a physician in the middle of surgery having problems that needs tech support. Um, so when you answer the phone, you really don't know what you're going to get. You don't know what the um, the level of understanding of the caller is. You know, some people know a lot about what they're talking about. Other people have, you know, no clue, and they're looking for help. So it's really interesting, though, because it's um, every call is different, and you're dealing with a lot of different types of people in a lot of different situations. So I've really enjoyed that because it really keeps you on your toes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I would guess you have to think on the fly all the time because you like you said, like you you don't know what calls coming in and it could be it's not like I think we need to, to kind of focus on that a little bit like it's not like a, a cell phone customer service. Uh, like you said, it could be a physician, a surgeon doing heart surgery that needs immediate help um, you just you never know so I think that's so intriguing and so important like what an important job um and you're like you're able to do it from home too right
1: right right I was yeah I was one of the first people that they allowed to work from home back when it wasn't such a a normal thing like it is now and so um <laughs> but it's been you know it's been great um I just I really enjoy the, the position just because it never gets fail yeah um, and, it's, and it's helping people I really enjoy helping people too so
0: yeah do so do you think it's got like do you think it gets easier with time once your experience grows does um the stress level go down with like not knowing what's going to come in or is that intensity intensity always there um
1: it it definitely gets easier because you know a lot of the calls are repetitious you kind of know what to expect different personalities different people that call in different situations however there always are new things that pop up or um, anytime you're helping someone in a in the middle of a surgery there's always
0: there's always some pressure to that because
1: you have to get it right and you have to get it right now
0: so sure sure so how long have like how long have you been doing this so this role I started in 2001 okay 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 Um, okay so then let's move into a little bit so I I think uh you contracted Lyme disease how many years ago
1: um, first started showing noticeable symptoms after the Des Moines half marathon at the end of 2013.
0: 2013, so seven years. Yep. Okay, so how has that affected your work um, and really like your day-to-day life?
1: That, that's a big question. Um, so before contracting Lyme disease, I didn't know much about it. Just the fact that, you know, you might get a bullseye rash, you take some antibiotics, you're fine. I had no idea the depth and the scope of what the disease can do, especially if you don't catch it right away. Um, And so I also didn't know that it can lay dormant. So you can be bitten by a tick. The um, bacterial spirochetes can be transmitted, but your immune system keeps it in check. And then during a time of stress, um, for me that was running a super hard half marathon, at the Des Moines half marathon, that can um, bring your immunity down. And so therefore allows the infection to take hold. so after that race, just in the months after that, I started getting all these really weird unrelated symptoms and they kept building just, you know, more and more symptoms, completely unrelated. And you're just trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and so by four months after that race, I could barely walk to the mailbox. Um, I couldn't read my daughter's children's books to her. Um, I'd, I mean, I could look, I could sit here and list the symptoms I had for 45 minutes. I mean, it was just Vast and varied, um, the nervous system really is a a wide uh, a wide place, I guess. Um, so anyway, I didn't get diagnosed finally until uh, end of May of two thousand fourteen, and then even then, once it's gotten into your central nervous system like that, there really is no set treatment. It's just you know one size fits all. Um, it's very difficult to treat and eradicate. And so it's been a it's been a battle since then. Um, so how has it affected my life? Uh, it pretty much has turned it upside down in a lot of ways. Um, it got bad enough to the point where I was I've, I've been on medical leave for the past two and a half years, um, not just because of the physical symptoms, but because of the cognitive symptoms. Um, to go from being so sharp to, you know, having having your cognitive function basically just shut off to the point where paying bills is difficult. Um, it's been extremely challenging. And it's just something that I think that a lot of people like 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 I was, you hear about Lyme disease, you have no idea how bad it can get until you've
0: experienced it. Um, I can't imagine the patience that's required for that too. Cause one, like your career to, in, in order to have that career, you have to be extremely bright and you have to think on the fly and you, you rely on your memory so much. So that, and also being, I mean, really like a a collegiate level athlete and then not, you know, having pain and, you know, difficult, just walking. I can't imagine the, the patience that it takes. Um, to deal with that,
1: and I think patience is something that you have to learn. I mean, when something like this happens, you have no choice because what else can you do? Um, patience and faith—you learn both of those real quickly. Um, empathy as well, because you realize there's a lot of people dealing with a lot of things that you may not may not know. Um, but yeah, it's it's basically just. It, it, like I said, it kind of turned my world upside down because everything that. Has defined you as you. I was always an athlete. I had my job. Um, I was a mom, and pretty soon all of those things are stripped away, and you're kind of left with, well, you know, who am I? And I'm, you know, very sick at that. It's not just I'm, you know, someone without those things. I'm a sick person without the things that made me me. Um, right. So that was really eye opening.
0: So, if you found anything recently to that like, have there been any breakthroughs or anything as far as like, um, advancements towards health again?
1: Um, yeah, I finally found something that's working. I was on high strength antibiotics, um, course of rotating antibiotics for nearly four years that didn't take care of it. Um, I tried, um, homeopathic solutions, um, herbal solutions. Um, none of that really did anything for me. Um, the, the antibiotics did help, but certainly didn't eradicate the infection. Um, I've seen Lyme doctors, Lyme specialists in Missouri, in California, in Arizona. Um, and so it's, it's a very time consuming and costly process too when you're just kind of chasing your health. Um, but there was in 2016, there was a researcher um, at Stanford University who tried 4,000, over 4,000 commercially available pharmaceuticals against Lyme disease to see if any of them had any effect against Lyme disease in the laboratory setting. And they found that one medication, it's called disulfiram, which commonly is known as antibuse for alcoholics, um, had tremendous antimicrobial properties and eradicated the Lyme disease. And so a patient heard about this research and took it to their Lyme doctor in uh, out east. And the Lyme doctor agreed to prescribe this you know off-label for Lyme disease, and um, the patients that he did that for had great success in healing, and so um, there are now so many Lyme patients on this medication that there's a nationwide shortage of it, and so I, I discovered that medication in February. Um, I, I'm still on it, but it has made a world of difference, um, and it's, again, not something like, you know, I was used to getting sick. You take something for two weeks, and then you're better. This is definitely a marathon and not a sprint. Um, so it's, it's, again, the, the patient's part of that that you mentioned kind of comes into that because we want, you know, we want more now. We want to feel better now. And so um, just gradually getting better, allowing your body to heal um, as the infection is killed off. It, it certainly has taken quite a long time, but um, I'm in much, much better shape than, you know, mentally and physically than I
0: was a year ago. Uh, that's so good to hear. I mean, dealing with it for seven years, you know, like I can't even imagine what that's like. And even that doctor that found, you know, this, this drug, the specific drug that works, you said he tried 4,000 different things. Um, So just going through that and like how awesome that you found someone that, that has, you know, (laughs) did all that research to know, Um, otherwise you would be the one going through testing all of them still too. So Right. And it's a drug that like you wouldn't even think has this type
1: of effect. Um, You know, when you tell people what you're on, because that's usually something that, um, you know, people that are drinking and trying to stop drinking take. Um, And so you you wouldn't make that
0: connection that it could possibly help something so different. No. So what, like, I know it's probably hard to say, but what's your prognosis now? Um, I don't know
1: exactly. Um, The problem is when you've been sick for so long and everything has changed, like you don't even know what normal is anymore. That makes any sense, um, especially as you're going through the you know the aging process. You know, what what would I normally be feeling like at this point? I, I don't know for sure, but um, I think that prognosis is pretty good. I still have some you know some muscle damage and things like that that I think is going to be permanent. Um, but again, the body has a tremendous ability to heal itself too. So I think a lot of the stuff that I'm experiencing is gradually um, diminishing, and hopefully, will be
0: will go away completely. So have you been able to do any of the things that like that you used to enjoy doing? Any of your hobbies, like um, going like going for walks <laughs> leisurely and not having pain? Like, have you been able to reintroduce any of those hobbies?
1: I have been, um, because for me the thing that I love is you know running and triathlons. Um, I've always loved competing in those those type of events, and so um, you know to be at the point where I couldn't even walk to the mailbox box or for a while I, I, it was difficult to even hold my head up throughout um, to go from those kinds of things to, to being so diminished was so hard that I have been able to resume, um, running. I'm, I'm, I've signed up for the Des Moines half Ironman triathlon next spring or next summer, I should say. Um, and so it's wonderful to be able to do that again. My physical healing has been a little bit ahead of my con- cognitive healing. Um, but that's coming along too now. So I love it. I love it. I'm yeah, very happy. excited to be able to do that again.
0: Well, that's so awesome. And I can't help but think like to see that hope and that like to see that progress, like that's got to help with the recovery too, right? Like when you have that hope of like, oh, it's getting better. And then, you know, it seems like that would be a snowball effect in the correct, like in the positive direction.
1: Right. And even just, you know, for me, races are always something to look forward to. And when I was so sick, um, you know, not only do you feel absolutely horrible, But you have nothing to look forward to because there's nothing, you're so sick, you can't plan anything, you can't do anything. And there's just, when there's not a lot to look forward to, it puts you in a really tough spot. Um, And now I have things to look forward to again, um,
0: goals, things like that. And so I'm really excited about that. That's what I was going to ask you. If you, by nature, if you're a goal setter, like I, I would, <laughs> I meant, but like, a, a, are you naturally a goal setter and, you know, reaching towards those achievements are um, something that fuels you? Is that a natural? I, th- I think so, yeah. I've never really thought about it that way, but definitely I've always set goals and then set out to achieve them. So yeah. So now that you can again, like, that's awesome. So okay. what what do you, um like, if you were to, Tell someone like sharing your wisdom about Lyme disease um, to like the general public. If you were to tell something, someone something that you wish they knew about Lyme disease, what what I guess, what do you wish the general public would understand better about Lyme disease?
1: Sure. So um, I think the biggest thing is like if you look at Lyme disease, you look at the symptoms they say, OK, you can have a bullseye rash, you can have a fever, you can start developing joint pain, um, you know, some things like that. The list of um, things that you can—I guess—the symptoms, the symptom list—is so vast that once it gets in your central nervous system, it can—it can do anything. For me, I never had a fever. I never had a rash, really. Um, even a, a lot of the joint pain—I did have some of that, but not to the degree that many people have. But I had a myriad of other symptoms, and a lot of some of them are really interesting. Some of them were really severe, and when you compound that by having maybe 30 things going on at once, it's almost like you're living in this foreign body that you don't even recognize. Like you've just been, almost like you've been taken over, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I guess just to give you an example, one of the weird symptoms that I had early on was, um, I was eating lunch one day and I just stopped salivating. And I, I didn't know that you can't swallow without saliva. It makes sense, but you know, I've never experienced that before. And just, I stopped salivating for about five minutes and I made eating lunch, I had to go get a glass of water but you know that one's kind of interesting you
0: know a lot of them are a lot more more severe than that so yeah well and then just wondering like uh, is this nor- is this part of Lyme disease or is this something else like I'm sure you're always questioning that too right and I mean I
1: experienced you know you have you have your normal whatever that is for everybody you have your normal but then when you get sick with this to have there be so many deviations from that normal in so many areas. And like, that's for me, it was difficult trying to figure out what was wrong. You know, you go to the doctor, and you go, oh, I've got five minutes, what do I mention? They're, you know, it's gonna sound like I'm a, I'm a hypochondriac because I'm mentioning all these unrelated things, but they're all new and they're all serious. You know, and it's, it's like, it's kind of confounding trying to figure out how to, to tackle it when you don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people, end up with misdiagnoses because um, testing is not real accurate. And a lot of people don't think to test for lung disease. You know, they don't realize without the classic symptoms that it can still present in a lot of different ways.
0: Right. And I, I mean, I would guess like to my, like, I don't have that much background or knowledge about it, but it's like, oh, have you had a bullseye rash lately? And it's like, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Like you said, it can be dormant for years. So there could really be no sign of like sometimes there could be no sign of that even being an issue, right? Right, absolutely. And happened. that was like, that was my case. And I just, you know, I started,
1: I started doing more and more research on the internet and everything pointed to Lyme disease. But I'm like, how, how could I have Lyme disease? You know, I wasn't bitten recently. Um, and so, and then I finally asked for a test um, after about four months of symptoms and the test came back negative. So I'm like, well, shoot, you know, what? Now what? Because that's kind of what, the hook that I hung my hat on. I was pretty sure that was what it was. And then I started reading more of the testing. is really inaccurate. There's um, a two-tier testing system. And so we ended up paying um, out of pocket to get that second-tier test done at a specialty lab in California. And that's when it came back positive, uh, CDC positive for Lyme disease. And so then I was like, wait, I know what it is. We can treat it. I can get better. Um, and then you're stepping into this world that there's a lot of controversy around Lyme disease. Um, CDC doesn't recognize that it exists more than four, like they say that four weeks of antibiotics will take care of it. And uh, as many, many, many Lyme disease patients know, that is not the case. And more and more evidence is also showing that it survives much longer than a four-week course of
0: antibiotics. Uh, So so is is the CDC doing anything to uh, further their research on that? Um, I'm not sure, I,
1: I, with there are over 300,000 new Lyme disease cases every year, and so it's a big issue. Um, if you catch it early, you're okay, most likely, but um, I don't know, I think that they're behind on this. Um, I think so many people are being impacted, um, especially in the places where it's endemic, um, the East Coast, for one. Um, okay. But I think that more and more independent research studies are starting to show this, this type of thing sure so i think the tides will turn eventually but for the people that are affected now you know that that doesn't help them so
0: um i think definitely it needs more more research more um more attention yeah well and then that probably affects like what's covered by insurance and all that stuff too right because Absolutely. lyme disease end up patients end up paying a lot
1: out of pocket for that reason yeah. uh man that's frustrating So, yeah, it is. So you're kind of battling on multiple fronts. You're battling on, um, you know, a medical system that doesn't necessarily recognize a lot about the Lyme disease, um, except for Lyme specialists certainly do, but, you know, the the general establishment doesn't, um, and then you're, you know, just focusing on getting well, too, as far as, you know, your own health,
0: but, you know, having to worry about the financial side of that. Yeah. So are there, like, as far as specialists, are there Lyme specialists in Iowa, or do you, do you have to travel a lot for specialty care too? You really have to travel for the most
1: part um, because in Iowa, up until two years ago, um, if you prescribed antibiotics longer than that 28 days, you could lose your medical license. Um, and, and granted, antibiotics aren't the only only treatment, but um, yeah, for the most part to find, they call them Lyme literate, like so LLMD, Lyme literate doctors, um, they're pretty much outside of Iowa. They're, they're, there's getting to be, um, some more people in iowa i think that are starting to treat but for the most part you know some of the big big
0: at least the big names they're outside of iowa sure sure okay so this might go without saying but what are you passionate about <laughs>
1: so i mean my big thing is um athletics like triathlons running races uh, road races um that's always been the thing that i've loved but um to tag on to what we were just talking about now i think i've you know, sometimes things choose you, you don't choose them. Um, I'm definitely very interested in raising awareness for Lyme disease um, because there are so many people suffering, um, you know, without a lot of help. You know, the families don't believe them, some of them, um, you know, financially they're struggling and on top of all the things it's doing to their health. So um, that's become something that I'm very passionate about, is, you know, just trying to, um, to educate people. You know, some of the things that it can do and I, a lot of it i never would have believed had i not gone through it like had, had i someone told me this i kind of would have brushed it off and like oh you know just toughen up a little bit you know but so i i, I have a whole
0: different view public. i'm sorry what's that what can we do as the general public like as a, a general like what can we do to help i think the biggest thing is um
1: just awareness um, Then it's so much more than a bullseye eye rash and antibiotics. I mean, it's just, you know, it's in joint pain. It's, it's so much more than that for a lot of people. Um, I think awareness and just realizing that, you know, a lot of people, and I've realized this too, because I I think a lot of Lyme patients also are misdiagnosed um, from what I understand with things like fibromyalgia, even MS can have very similar symptoms. Okay. Um, and so I realized that when you have a lot of these so-called invisible illnesses, you know, you complain about things, but if you don't have something visible, like your arm is not broken or something, people don't believe how bad some, some of these things are. And so I think that's, that's it too. is just having empathy
0: for people that,
1: Mm -hmm. that are suffering. I think,
0: and you mentioned that at the very beginning, right? Like that's something that you have gained through this whole process is empathy for others, but it's important for everyone to have empathy (laughs) right Um, even yeah like to have empathy for other people I think that's an important thing for everyone so that's that's a good thing to to mention too I think so (laughs) yeah yeah okay so what has been like a major risk that you have had to take to get to where you are now
1: I'm not sure if I've had a major risk or, you know, a big thing that I've done or a chance that I've taken. Um, I think it's more, of, for me, it's been a more of a series of smaller or calculated risks, um, changing, um, I should say, setting goals, going after them. Um, so I, I don't think I have something that's big. Um, the only thing that I can can say, though, is that usually when you're set, you set your life up, you set it up and you learn and you're kind of going along this course, um, you're getting more comfortable in your career, you're this and that. And so for me, I guess, um, kind of like having my life turned upside down, I almost feel like I'm starting from scratch again, which is a really weird place to be when you've you know, had all these years of experience in something and being a, you know, a, a person who is a certain way um, had your career go smoothly, So that's really, it's not a risk. And I guess that's not really answering your question. It's not a a risk I've taken, but I definitely feel like I've just kind of taken this huge leap and I'm starting over. I mean, I I feel very blessed. I feel like I'm getting a second chance at life again, but um, it is in some respects, like kind of like starting over. Sure.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think like, I see all of your like pursuit of treatment for Lyme disease, like there's a lot of risks that you've taken there too, just to, you know, you don't know if it's going to be the right treatment or not. And there's side effects and everything. I mean, there's a lot of (laughs) risks with that too. So.
1: That's very true because even like taking antibiotics for that long, I mean, that's, there, there are side effects for sure to being on high strength antibiotics for a long time. So, you know, you're absolutely right. You're just kind of having to put, put faith in something that you hope will work. Uh, Right doesn't always pan out that way, but. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's the risks of like the risks that you intended on taking since you were a little girl, probably right. On uh, the career side of things and like, okay, we're going to set this goal and keep going and take these little calculated risks. But then there's all of these like unexpected risks that you've had to take too. Right. Yep. That's a good, good way to put it. And I think all of it makes you uh, so much <laughs> more, um, of, you know, just like so much more interesting and so much more resilient as a human being too, because you've had to go through all these unexpected things.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, this is the first big setback I've ever had in my life. Um, It's interesting when you're knocked down that low, you really find out who you are and what you're made of in a lot of respects. Um, You know, I've had smaller setbacks throughout my life, like we all do, but this has been one that I've really had to dig deep into who I am, what makes me tick, um, what motivates me, Yeah, those those questions.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine. Uh, um, So who is somebody that inspires you? So I guess um,
1: the types of people I'm inspired by, to start with, I always like people that are continually, that never get comfortable, that are always striving for different things, learning new things, um, that just... You know, are continuing to grow in who they are. Um, I think that's very admirable. Um, and on the flip side of that, I've always been really intrigued by older athletes. Um, like when I did the Ironman in Hawaii back when I was in my, my 20s, I thought, you know, it's, it's one thing to look at the, the pros who are the leaders in the race who are just amazing. And most mm-hmm. of us could never touch that kind of athletic ability. But when you looked at the age group athletes, the older people, these people in their 60s, 70s, some of them even 80s now, that are doing these type of events, and I've always been inspired by, you know, how are they keeping their bodies in in the shape to, to do that kind of thing, um, pursue those goals at older ages? So yeah, that's always been something I've really been interested in. In one in particular, um, sister, uh, her name is Sister Madonna Buder, and okay. she is a nun. She um, she's known as the Iron Nun. She, okay. uh, she's from Washington state and she does Ironman triathlons and other triathlons as well. But, um, she didn't get into it until her fifties. And she is just this amazing person. I, I got the chance to meet her at the High V triathlon in 2011 here in Des Moines. And, um, she is now, I think she's almost, I think she's 89 now. And I think she finally had to give up Ironmans like two, maybe two years ago, but I know how hard that race, those races were when I was 24, 25 years old. I right. can imagine doing those in my 80s. And so she's always I've always found her tremendously inspiring. Um, you know, I kinda kinda always want to be like like her when I get older. So. Sure.
0: Yeah. No, like when you're talking, um I feel like you like so going through this for the last seven years with Lyme disease, I feel like you've always been the same person on the inside, but you've had this like weighted blanket on you and you've still been able, it's almost like training, right? So it's like mental training where you've had like all this weight on you um, just from all of the complications of the disease, but you've still powered through. And now as that weight comes off a little bit by a little bit, the weight being all the complications of the disease, I can only imagine that you're going to be like amazing, like next year when you do this half marathon and in all of your athletic endeavors as they come up, just because you've been so trained mentally to power through and be resilient. And I can't help but think that that's gonna like catapult you into great places, so. I sure hope so. It's definitely given me a far
1: different perspective. Um, And I think you touched on a point that I think is important. Um, the past couple of years have been so difficult, um, in, in many ways, some that I can't even describe, but I think that all of the training and racing I did, like the long distance training, like the Ironman type stuff, where you learn to suffer for hours and hours on end. Um, I think that helped you know, obviously because but the, the only thing with the race, you know, there's a finish line, you know, you're, you're done got suffering at a certain point with this, it was like every day it was like, is there ever going to be an end to this? Um, but I do think the athletic training and mindset did help with that because you learned to, to deal with a lot of suffering and just endure really. Yeah. But um, yeah, as far as coming out the other side of that now, um, I've changed my mindset. Like sometimes, you know, the alarm goes off early and you've got to get up. You know, oh, I have to do this. I've changed my thinking to not from, I have to do this. I get to do this. I get to do this again, you know, even if it's going to work. Um, and that's a big, how you look at things makes a big difference, I think.
0: Yeah. I think that's a mindset that everyone should take away.
1: <laughs> right. And granted, there still are times where it's like, oh, you know, but for the most part, I've really looked at things like, I couldn't do this before. You know, It's something that I just took for granted for a long time and I can do it again. Um, So
0: I get to do it. I love that. I love that. So where can people learn more about Lyme disease? Where is a good resource? And I can put it up when when I post the video, I can put it up in text form too, but um, just if you wanna rattle off um, a site or a resource that would be good for people to learn more.
1: Sure. Um, It's been a while since I've looked at them, but the two that come to mind, um, one is um, the Texas Lyme Alliance. Okay. They have some good information. Um, also, ILADS, I L A D S dot Okay. And um, they also have quite a bit of good information on their website. Um, CDC's has, you know, kind of a standard, like the things that we went over earlier, that doesn't necessarily describe my experience or the, that of many other Lyme patients. So, um, you know, maybe in some cases, that's what people experience, but a lot of people, you know, have things far beyond what is listed on their website,
0: so. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Kirsten, for joining today. Uh, this has been very informative. Um, you are an inspiration. You are going to do amazing things, I know, um, and I really appreciate you coming and talking today. Well, sure. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank